Hello, welcome to the podcast at Chesbro Baptist Church, continuing in our Sunday morning series on I Will Honor God. The title of the message this morning is The Life of Honor. We're going to look at a instance in the life of Abraham. The text for this morning is Genesis 14, verses 17 through 23. Please enjoy. Genesis chapter 14 this morning. Genesis chapter 14. The devil can do a lot of things, but he's not going to ruin my Sunday morning. Not going to do it. I'm not going to let him. I'll yell at him in his face until he goes away with his tail between his legs. He's not going to ruin my Sunday morning this morning, bless God. Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. We're continuing in our series on a life that honors God, on honoring God. I've enjoyed it, and we are going to continue in it as long as God says it's time to continue in it. And uh, uh, this morning we're going to talk about the life of honor, the life of honor. So if you have your places in Genesis chapter 14, if you'll stand to your feet one last time as we read the scriptures, we're going to begin in verse number 17. We're going to read through verse number 23. The Bible says in Genesis 14 and 17, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shevev, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him the tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine head unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from, uh, from a thread even to, to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Let's stop there. The title of the message this morning, The Life of Honor. The Life of Honor. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you once again for giving us an opportunity to be in the house of God today. Dear Lord, I pray that you'd be with the preaching of the Word of God. I pray that you'd be with us that have come to hear your Word preached. I pray the Spirit and power of God would fill this place. We'd fill your presence, Lord, and we'd be glad that we came to church today. Thank you for all you've done for us. Be with us this morning as we explore the Word of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. You know, I used to think in my shop that I could teach anybody anything. And so what I started doing is I would start hiring for, for character over job experience. I had a, I had a, a, a long, <clears throat> I had a little time when I first became manager of the shop finding people with some good character. It's hard to find people with character today. And, you know, uh, my boss, me and my owner were talking. He's like, Brad, you can always teach somebody a service, but it's hard to teach character. And for the most part, that has been right. For the most part, that has been right. 
And when it comes to to an in, when it comes to an entry level position, like say the lowest man on the totem pole in my shop is the pit man. Okay, when it comes to an entry level position, not a lot of experience is required. It's pretty simple: plug and filter, plug and filter, plug and filter, and the next car comes in, plug and filter. You know, it, it's pretty simple stuff. Okay, but you know what I found is that, you know, uh, that works for like an entry level position. But when you get to like assistant manager where you're running the shop when I'm not there, I have found that it does help to have some experience because I have hired a guy in the past that had zero experience working on cars in that position. Things didn't work out too well. You know, we drained a, a transmission because we thought it was the oil plug and double oiled a car and cranked it up and white smoke hit Delaware. And then we even sent a car out um, not with no oil in the engine. And it got 20 feet out the bay and stopped. Is this light supposed to come on? Uh, no, so that light's not supposed to be on. And uh, thankfully we're able to save that. Did you oil it up? Well, well, I thought I oiled it up. You got to know, you can't think. You got to know that you know that you know you put oil in that car. You just can't think and hope and assume. Oh, I cross my fingers, hope it's going to be okay. You can't do that, okay? So now let's just say when it comes for certain, especially the higher up in my shop go, especially assistant manager, I'm going to ask for some experience. You're going to have to show me some evidence that you've got to have a little bit of experience and know what you're talking about. You got to know what you're doing. If we were to ask ourselves this morning, what is the evidence in my life that demonstrates that I have a life that honors God? What would the answer be? Oh, we certainly could speak of the blessings and honor that God has given us, but that's not the, that's not the, the question I'm asking. The question that I'm asking is, is my life an honor to God? Does my life honor God? In the passage of scripture this morning, we're going to see a man who lived a life to honor God. That was his whole purpose. And we're going to see the residual effect of God honoring him. You remember, because remember, the first, the first day we started on this series, God said, them that honor me will I honor. Okay? But before we get into the message this morning, and I promise you I'm not going to be very long. You're going to be out of here quick. And usually when a Baptist preacher says that, that's a lie. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. It's 50-50. Um, so before we get into the message this morning, let's talk about some facts about Genesis 14. Let's set, the, let's set the stage here, okay? First, we need to know the alliances. So the first thing we have is we have five kings going up against Chedorlaomer and an alliance of four kings, okay? So we have five kings going up against four kings, one of which is uh, the, the, the city-state city of Chedorlaomer. So second, we need to know the geography. The five kings on this side came from the Jordan River Valley at the base of the Red Sea, on the south end of the Red Sea. The other alliance, led by Chedorlaomer, come from where the Tigris and the Euphrates River 
come together and intersect. So kind of over in Iran. Okay, so we got the Jordan River Valley and we got this, this, these four kings come over here kind of around where Iran is. So Chedorlaomer and those four kings are hundreds and hundreds of miles away from home. Third, we need to know the history. Because you see, for 12 years, the kings, these five kings of the Jordan River Valley have paid tribute to Chedorlaomer. So what does that tell us about Chedorlaomer? That tells us that Chedorlaomer had a very powerful army to enforce that these five nations, that these five kings paid tribute to them, they had to have a very powerful army. Well, for 12 years, things went on this way. Well, in the 13th year, the, the Jordan River Valley Kings, sounds like a basketball team, they quit paying tribute. Well, in the 14th year, Chet and Leomar gathered their alliances and started marching toward the Jordan River Valley. On the way marching towards these kings, they defeated the Rephites, the Zuzites, the Emites, and the Horites. When they got to the Jordan River Valley, they overpowered all five of these city-states, all five of these nations, all five of these kings. They kidnapped all of the inhabitants, took all the possessions, okay? So that's, which included, by the way, Lot and his family, okay? So lastly, we need to know the outcome. So after Chedorlaomer and this alliance of four kings deleted the Jordan River Valley kings in the semifinals. No, I'm sorry. This sounds like a basketball team. And so after they defeated these kings, they, um, a, a, a survivor uh, got away from the defeat, came to Abraham, and explained to Abraham what had happened. Well, Abraham is hearing what's happening to his nephew, and he's like, oh, this... This can't stand. So what did Abraham do? Abraham armed his own servants, 318 of them. That, that, that's not a lot considering, considering how powerful the army of Chedorlaomer was, okay? 318 is not a lot. But you see, here's the thing. Uh, a couple things were on Abraham's side. One is he used guerrilla tactics, he strategically was able to fight them because, uh, you know, he didn't just come up and fight them head on. And, and another thing is it helps to have the God of Israel on your side. And that's kind of the main reason. It didn't matter if Abraham only had five servants. If God wanted him to win, he was going to win. Okay? So Abraham comes in here, overpowers or defeats Chedorlaomer, gets all of the people back, gets all of the possessions back, and then the king of Sodom comes up and says, Abraham, in order to thank you for doing this for us, I'd like to give you something. And this is basically where our story picks up. So with that, with the background explained, what I want to talk to you about this morning is I want to talk about a life of honor. I want to talk about a life of honor. I've got some statements for you. Statement number one. The life of honor is victorious, not victimized. The life of honor is victorious, not victimized.
And you know what? Don't we have a lot of people today playing the victim? People playing the victim who are not victims, but they play the victim. Because that's what the world does. The world, you have a life of victimization, where in God, you have a life of victory. Okay? Look, struggles are to be had. You're going to have struggles. This is a part of life. You're going to have struggles. However, a life lived in the world is continual victimization, but a life lived in the spirit is continual victory. So I want to take a, I want to take a minute. I want to look at both Lot and Abraham. So first I want to consider Lot. Lot was the victim of his own foolish choices. He was the victim of his own foolish choices. Lot's downward progression of foolish choices demonstrated that Lot Lot did not want to honor God. Lot only wanted to honor himself. He didn't want to honor God. His continual desire was to honor himself. Lot pitched his tent toward what? Toward Sodom. He pitched his tent toward Sodom. He was captivated by it. So one day he became a captive of it. Genesis 12, 12 and 13. And Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Genesis 14, 12. And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. You know, isn't it funny that Lot was continually and constantly troubled by the wickedness of Sodom? Does wickedness ever bother you? Do you ever see wickedness on the TV and see wickedness maybe in other parts of your family or see wickedness around? Does it ever just bother you? Well, that's probably because you're a child of God. It's probably because you've got the Holy Spirit in you, and that's why wickedness troubles you. And that's why wickedness doesn't trouble some people, because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. The Bible says, well, you know, um, you, you, might, you might look at Lot's life and say, well, well, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Well, I guess that means that, that Lot was a lost man. The Bible would disagree with you. The Bible tells us, with, it tells us 100% Lot was a saved man. That's what the Bible says, 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing, listen to this, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their lawful deeds. Lot had a righteous soul. Lot was justified. See, Lot was righteousness in God's eyes, but if you were to look at Lot, you probably wouldn't see righteousness because he wasn't living it. But the Bible says that he was saved. Other people, it was hard to see his righteousness, okay? But he was a saved man. So Lot lived in Sodom, and so he was continually vexed with its wickedness. However, do you know what the Bible doesn't record? The Bible never records that Lot never once built an altar to God in Sodom. The Bible doesn't record not once that Lot ever sacrificed to God in Sodom. 
The Bible doesn't, doesn't record at, that, that Lot ever prayed to God in Sodom. He never sacrificed to God in Sodom. He never built an altar in Sodom. He never did anything to show anybody that he was saved. <clears throat> he never did anything like that. He failed to follow through with godly actions that would have separated him. Lot wanted to be like everybody else. He wanted him, he wanted everybody to know, oh, I fit in, I'm just like you, I'm no different. We have a lot of Christians like that today. They're in the world and they want to be like the world and look like the world and act like the world and talk like the world because they don't want to be looked down upon. They don't want to be mocked for being a holy roller. So they don't do anything to separate themselves from the world. And that's what's going on with Lot. He did nothing to separate himself and his family from the ungodliness, which was Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord delivered Lot because of his righteous soul, but he lost everything. Why? Because his association was too close to those wicked cities. We know that Lot lost his children. A lot, some of his children were, were lost when Sodom fell. Two of his daughters lost their purity, got their father drunk and conceived by their own father in a, in a cave. Lot even lost his wife because of her addiction to the world. Now, Lot finds himself taken captive with, by the godless world that he has chosen to be a part of. Lot is a living example of someone who is lightly esteemed by God. I want you to remember something, Christian. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, costs you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. Now let's consider Abraham, the victor through the power of God. The victor through the power of God. Look at, uh, well, Genesis 23, verse 4. I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Lot was a friend of the world. He actually sat at the gates of the city. You know why you sit at the gates of the city? To rub elbows with everybody. That was the watering hole, okay? That was the feed store, okay? That was where everybody went to drink coffee, and, and, and that's what Lot wanted. Lot was all about that. But the Bible says that Abraham, he was a friend of God. He was a friend of God and saw himself as a sojourner. You know what sojourner means? Sojourner means a temporary traveler. I am a sojourner in the land. I'm just going through here temporarily. And that was one of the most important elements of Abraham's victory is he knew his place. He knew he didn't belong there. He knew he had another family. He knew he had another father. He knew he was citizen to another country. He knew he belonged somewhere else. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. We often assume that struggles will come for people like Lot. Picture of living in the world, but not those like Abraham. 
Struggles aren't going to come from somebody like Abraham who's who separated themselves to God. But you know what? You ever go through those restful periods in your Christian life where you're not fighting any battles and everything's kind of smooth and clear and peaceful? You know what? Those times of peace in your life, that's not time to stop and smell the roses and take a stroll. You know what that time is? That's time for you to prepare for the next battle. That's time for you to prepare for the next battle. Those times of restful communion with God and times of re-rest and peace, don't let your guard down. Don't let your defenses time down. When you're on the top of the mountain, you're not going to be up there very long. Another valley is coming. You know it's going to come. Prepare for that valley. Don't waste that time on the mountaintop, you know, listening to the birds chirp and the babbling brook. Don't do that. Don't, you know, play in hopscotch. Prepare for the next battle because it's going to come. And that's what Abraham did. Those times in his life when everything was, was, was peaceful, man, he knew that he was, that was just time for him to prepare for the next battle. Now, obviously, would we, obviously, we would, we would prefer times of rest rather than war. But, you know, this is the only time in Scripture where Abraham went to war that we can find. War isn't always necessary. But when it was, Abraham went. Christians, we got a war coming. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. There's going to come a time... In the near future, there's going to be a knock at that door and they're going to try to come in this church and tell us what we can and can't say behind this pulpit. And it's going to be under the guise of political correctness. Oh, it's not politically correct. You don't think that this book, they're going to get offended at this book? You don't think that? You know how many times slavery is mentioned in this book and how to treat slaves? Now, look, I am not saying that slavery is right. Slavery is wrong. I believe that. But what I'm saying is, is they're going to come in here and try to take this book away from you because it's not politically correct. There's coming a time when Christians are going to have to stand up and fight. And you think we've been fighting so far, but this so far, it's just been a precursor. It's just been a rest. We're just resting. There's going to come a time when churches are going to have to stand up and fight. When Abraham heard that Lot was taken captive, Abraham was already prepared. Why? Because during that restful time for Abraham, he wasn't just, you know, uh, working in his garden. He was preparing for battle. Abraham was ready when the battle came. So when the battle came, Abraham was ready to fight. Genesis 14, 14. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained, trained servants. He had been training them. Why was he training them? Because he was getting ready for battle. And born in his own house, 318, and pursued them on unto Dan. I don't think that Abraham was looking for a fight, but he was ready when a fight came. 
Anybody's dad's ever told you that? Son, you better not start a fight. But if somebody starts one with you, you better finish it. I've heard that a lot. But, you know, he was certainly ready when one came. He armed his servants. You know why we have church? So you can be armed. You know why we come in here and we preach the Bible on Sunday mornings? It's so you can be armed. You know the reason why we gather together on Wednesday nights and open that Bible and study the Word of God is so that you can be armed. And part of the reason why the ladies meet on, on Thursday morning is so you can be armed. And part of the reason is why we have vacation Bible school is so your kids can be armed. And the reason why we have men's meetings and ladies' meetings is that so you can be armed, but people don't want to hear it. They don't want to be ready for battle. They don't want to be armed. That's the reason why we do what we do. We are preparing you for battle. And then the battle comes and people are like, where is God? Well, we're like, were you preparing for battle? Or were you sitting at the house? Were you preparing for battle? Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. Now, sadly, now what I'm saying is be ready for battle, but don't go out looking to pick a fight. Okay? Sadly, some believers are always looking to pick a fight. They're always wanting to fight. Fighting is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not. An obstinate attitude is a product of the flesh. Romans 12, 10, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Abraham, he didn't go out looking to pick a fight, but man, when a fight came, he was ready to go. Number two, the life of honor is separated, not isolated. You know, you know, it's kind of encouraging that Abraham got this battle by choice. OK, this was a chance where Abraham stood up and said, look, it's time for me to take a stand. It's time for me to fight. You know, we've already saw that that Abraham was a stranger and a sojourner. But I, I want you to see, though, that Abraham had a life of separation, but he did not have a life of isolation. And there is a difference. There is a difference between separation and isolation. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. Even those around Abram knew he was different from Lot. Genesis 14, 13. There came one that had escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew. That is the first time the word Hebrew is in your Bible. That is the very first time it's in there. And you know what Hebrew means? It means one from beyond. It means one from beyond. It communicates this idea that we are outsiders. Okay? Think about Jesus in his final prayer prior to his arrest. He prayed for those men that followed him because Jesus knew what they would face. But Jesus also knew 
that they had to be a part of the world in order for them to spread the gospel. And, and that's, the why, that's why me and you have the, know the gospel today. John 17, 14, and 15. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from evil. See, those men who were his disciples, they would face many trials. But even though they would face many trials, they did not isolate themselves from the unsaved. They didn't. They shared the gospel with both the Jew and the Gentile. And that's the reason why we have G why we know about Jesus today. They did not isolate them themselves from the world, but they did separate themselves from worldly living. And there is a difference. You know, we've all heard that verse, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And usually that verse is meant to set, you know, to stop a marriage from, from a believer and an unbeliever. And rightfully so. But, you know, that, that verse, it has a much more deeper meaning than just marriage. Okay. All New Testament scripture has its foundation in Old Testament scripture. And guess what? God's truth never changes. Okay. Let me read for you Deuteronomy 22.10. Thou shalt, thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass, ass together. Let me ask you a question. If a farmer had an ox and a donkey, would he be like, okay, this is ox grass in this field, so I'm going to feed the ox here. But then I'm going to take the donkey and I'm going to put him over in this field because this is donkey grass. It's all grass, okay? These two animals, they're going to eat the same grass in the same field. But you know what the difference is? When you yoke them together, you force them to walk the same path. That is what God, Jesus is saying to us. You are going to be in the world. You, you're all in the same field. You're going to eat the same grass. We eat the same grass as the lost people. We're in the same field. But the difference is when I yoke myself up with a lost person or I yoke myself up with something worldly, I force myself to go in that direction. And that is wrong. Anything that turns you away from your Christian rock is wrong. This includes business partnerships. This includes friendships. And this can even, even, uh, can even reach being yoked together with certain secular music, television, and movies. Look, y'all have heard me say this before, and I'm going to say it again. Am I going to stand up here behind this pulpit and tell you you can't listen to country music? Am I going to do that? Absolutely not. I am not going to say that. But am I going to stand up here and say you don't need to listen to songs about adultery and you don't need to get, listen to songs about drinking beer and getting drunk? That's just about saying the same thing. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, because a lot of us like that. But what the, I am going to stand up here and say that. You know what mine and, Emily's, mine and Miss Emily's song is? Forever and ever and amen by Randy Travis. It's not victory in Jesus. Okay? It's not. It's forever and ever amen. That's, that's our song. Nothing wrong with that song. It's even got amen in it, okay? But the thing is, the thing is, is it's a secular song, okay? I'm telling you, we don't have to pretend like the world doesn't exist. Have you ever noticed? 
talking about country music. Have you ever noticed that most country music's about Bubba? Man, Bubba did this, and Bubba did that, and Bubba shot the jukebox, and Bubba did this, that, and the other. Well, you know what? When you're on the radio and Bubba does something Bubba shouldn't do, you know what you should do? Is your kids should see you reach over that radio, click, and turn that station. And they need to see you make an example and say, oh, songs that talk about that stuff we don't listen to in our family. They need to see you make an example of that, okay? Am I, am I saying you can't watch TV? Absolutely not. 40% of my preaching is TV references, okay? Uh, our sermons would be a lot shorter, okay, if I couldn't talk about TVs and movie, okay? But here's the thing, though. When a Christian watches movies filled with foul language, and a Christian watches movies where sin has just, just gone wild, what happens is, is that language and those attitudes slip into your everyday language. And then you stub your toe and you let out a cuss word. Or you're around your friends that cuss and now you're cussing along with them. You, listen, what I'm saying in this is, is you don't have to be a monk. You don't have to be a monk, okay? That's the kind of church I was raised up in. We weren't allowed to go to the movies. We couldn't listen to any music unless it was Christian music, okay? And, you know, I, and I'm saying that that's not necessary, and I'm explain why in just a second. Look, not everything that I post on social media is about God, and that's okay. What the preacher just say? I can't believe the preacher just said that. What is, what is he talking about? You know, sometimes I post a picture of my kids. Sometimes I post a, a funny meme. If you don't want to know what a meme is, ask McKenna. Okay? Sometimes, but you know what? I post spiritual stuff too. I do. Look, we don't have to pretend the world doesn't exist because we live in the world. We all eat the grass out of the same field. So guess what? It's okay that I'm a Trekkie. That's okay. Yes, it is, woman. It's okay. It's okay that I like to go hunting. It's okay for me to turn the radio on and it's not on Caleb. Oh, it's okay. I don't have to isolate myself from the world. I don't have to become like the Amish. Me and Brother Junior are going to go raise a barn later like, we, like they did on Witness. Oh, there's another movie reference. You can't fulfill the Great Commission that way. Do you know when I connect with a lost person and I try to give them the gospel, do you know the conversation usually doesn't start out with something spiritual? Usually it starts out with something secular. Usually it's talking about the saints or LSU or crawfish. We are in Louisiana after all, okay? All right? Usually it starts out with something secular. So what's the difference between separation and isolation? And the difference is my attitude towards sin. That is the difference. 
If the music is about sin and promotes sin, I can't listen to it. If the movie promotes sin and is about sin, I can't watch it. If the TV show promotes sin as a lifestyle, I can't watch it. I have to turn it off. What is my attitude towards sin? If the conversation that I'm having starts me on a sinful path, I have to walk away from that conversation. That's how people will know that you're different. Not because you don't talk about football or not because you don't listen to any music except Christian music. They'll just think you're weird. But they'll know you're different when sin comes up and you say, oh, that's enough. I can't have that because that is sin. What does that mean? Oh, you don't know? Let me explain to you what sin is. See, sin, that's where, you, that's where you draw the line. You draw the line at sin. Does the world see you as an outsider? Separated, but not isolated from the world around you? Do you have the kind of testimony where when somebody lets out a cuss word or gives some foul language and they notice you're standing, they say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that around you. You have that kind of testimony? I mentioned this before, but I had a Bible, a Bible professor in Bible college. The, in the boys' dorm, every morning we'd have devotions before we had class. And one of the male uh, teachers, would they would rotate, and one every morning would give a different devotion uh, to the guys from the boys' dorms. And I remember one time I had this Brother Blackwell got up and he said something. And Brother Blackwell was a military man and man, he was, whoo, he was rough and tough and man, he beat on that pulpit and screamed. And of course, we're, we're just a bunch of guys in Bible college. We're loving every minute of it, okay? I mean, the more you spit on us, the better. And so he, he's up there letting her rip one morning in, uh, in morning devotions. And he said something that stuck with me and burned in my brain. And I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. And he said, if other guys in the dorm will break the rules in front of you, then you don't have a testimony. And man, that stuck with me. That really stuck with me. See, a life of honor is separated but not isolated. And what happens when you have a life that's separated and not isolated, what that means is that you have a life that is independent from the world, but you are not indifferent to the world's needs. See, if you isolate yourself too much from the world, you won't know what the world needs. If you Amish or cult yourself, or be shut up in a compound away, you know, throw the TV in the garbage, that kind of thing. You know, if you do that, then guess what? You're not going to know what the world's needs are. Okay? Who was able to do more good, Abraham or Lot? Well, that's an easy question to ask. It was Abraham. Okay? The most effective way to serve the world is to be a faithful witness and separate from it, but not isolate from it. Number three, the life of honor is focused on the provider, not the provision. 
The life of honor is focused on the provider and not the provision. Genesis 14, 17 through 21. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of, of uh, Shaveh, which is in the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, professor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. Now we come to the most substantial part of this passage. This decision that Abraham is about to make will impact his future direction. It's one of the most clear choices ever presented to a man in Scripture. And it comes at a time of great victory in Abraham's life. He just got, he just got all the people back. He just got all the possessions back. He just beat Chedorlaomer with 318 people. Man, this is a great time of, of victory. Now, let me tell you something. The manner in which we handle victory is more insightful than the manner in which we handle defeat. Now, here the question remains. Who will Abraham choose to honor? Will he choose to honor himself or will he choose to honor God? Abraham stands at the crossroads. M&Ms or Skittles. Okay. He stands at the crossroads. He's got a choice to make. Abraham stands between the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. You know, it's interesting that Melchizedek did not come to Abraham when he was pursuing Chedorlaomer. Melchizedek came to Abraham when he was being pursued by the king of Sodom. Isn't that interesting? So on one hand, you have the king of Salem. Salem means peace. On the other hand, you have the king of Sodom. Sodom means burning. On the one hand, you have the priest of the Most High God. On the other hand, you had King Bera. That was his name. You know what Bera means? Bera means son of evil. On the one hand, he's offered the blessing of God. On the other hand, he's offered the bounty of the world. One is a picture of Christ, and one is a picture of the world. This one was invisible, you couldn't see the blessings, you couldn't see it, but the other, you could see it. It was the visible versus the invisible. Let me ask you a question this morning, Christian. Have you become so focused on what God can do for you that you've forgotten Him? Isn't the blesser more significant than the blessing. Have you ever been given a gift so great that you're in awe of the greatness of the gift and you forget the greatness of the giver? Have you ever been to a kid's birthday party? You know what I'm talking about. That kid, he gets that, he or she gets that present and they rip in. So you have several kind. You have the kind of kids that just kind of rip into it and the other kind of kids that delicately you know, pick it apart, and the parents are like, oh, I'm ripping to it. 
Okay, but the thing is, is you, the kid rips into the present and looks at the present like, oh, man, awesome, cool. I love it. You know, and then what do the parents have to do? The parents have to say, read the card. Who gave it to you? Look at them and say thank you. And so that's what the parent has to do. The parent has to remind the kid to thank the giver because the kid is all wrapped up in the greatness of the gift. They forget the greatness of the giver. And then a lot of times we, we're like, we become like that in our spiritual life. I got some more questions for you. Do you want your marriage restored more than you want the restorer? Do you want your provisions increased more than you want the provider? Do you want your children to return to God more than you want the God that can return them? If you want, if you, uh, want what God can do for you more than you want God, then you've chosen to honor yourself. But if you want God more than what he can do for you, then you've chosen to honor God. This becomes a life of honor. Don't just, don't just desire what God can do for you. Desire God. And say, God, even if you never do that for me, I desire you. Be like the three Hebrew children. My God can save me out of that furnace. But even if he doesn't, I will not bow down. I will still pray to my God. And there's nothing you can do about it. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thine name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. How easy would it have been for Abraham to accept, to receive from the son of evil, from the king of burning, all the loot that was offered. Like I said, it was the visible versus the invisible. Ephesians 1 through 3. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Who are you choosing to honor today? Are you choosing to honor God or self? Who will you choose? Will it be the abundance of physical blessings or will it be the source of the blessings? And whether the blessings come or not, you're going to trust the source. When Abraham chose to honor God rather than honor himself, you know basically what he was saying? He was saying, keep the world and just give me Jesus. That's what he was saying. Lot should have said the same thing. But Lot returned to his life of compromise. Now Abraham now lives by the blessing and honor of the Lord and not the help and bounty of the world. Napoleon was on his horse. And he was riding his horse by his troops one day. And as he was riding his horse, his horse got a little too rowdy bucked Napoleon off of the horse and took off running. 
Whereas the horse was running, nobody would do anything, but one private jumped out of the ranks, grabbed the reins of the horse, and slowed the horse down. Napoleon got up, walked to where the private was walking the horse back to him, took the horse away from the private, looked at the private and said, Thank you, Captain. And with one word, Napoleon promoted that man from private to captain right then and there. Why? Because that soldier put the needs of his general first. We need to stop putting our needs above God. Our needs come second to him. After all, the Lord saith, for them that honor me will I honor. 